You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series on evidences, how the Bible came to be, part two. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. How the Bible came to be, part two, the Old Testament Apocrypha. In our first class, we saw that the bulk of the Old Testament was written around 1000 to 400 BC. The nucleus grew. The Jews thought of their scripture in three parts law, prophets, writings, Torah, Navim, Ketuvim. And just as the Old Testament did not drop out of heaven, Neither did most of the books of the Old Testament exist immediately. Many of them show signs of editing, coming out in different versions. So they're growing at the macro and micro levels. And yet the Old Testament, as we concluded, was incomplete. There is prophecy of a new covenant on the way, as in Jeremiah 31. And in Judaism, a covenant requires something to be written. The Old Testament in other words, ends in suspense. The Messiah has not come. The new covenant is not in effect yet. Uh, In the Hebrew order, uh, it ends in chronicles with the Persian king, Cyrus, saying, whoever wants to go up to Jerusalem, let him go. And so they're going to make a new beginning. But and, and, (laughs) what's next? In the Greek version, we saw the Bible, the Old Testament Uh, Bible ends in Malachi, which prophesies the coming of the Messiah, who is God himself, immediately after a predecessor, an Elijah figure. Well, either way, we're still waiting. The Messiah hasn't come. And that's what we saw in the first class. So what is the Old Testament Apocrypha? Apocryphon is a Greek word meaning a hidden thing. Apocryphon. We usually use the word in the plural, Apocrypha. An Apocrypha would mean hidden things. Now, normally, It means something that's not included in the canon of the Bible. The canon is the rule of the Bible. It's not included. It's non-canonical. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, there's been suppression or that these were discovered, uh, you know, centuries or millennia after they were written. Uh, The word apocrypha doesn't mean that there was any kind of conspiracy or suppression. And and that's important. So really, it's the alternative to uh, canonical. If it's canonical, it's in the books of the Bible that we have, the standard books. Apocryphal, these are books that were not included in the Bible. Now, the Old Testament Apocrypha are written in the intertestamental period. And uh, if I'm going too fast for you, um, it's all in the notes uh, that accompany uh, the series. Intertestamental period is after the Old Testament leaves off, around the time of Malachi 400 B.C., and before the New Testament, that is with the resumption of prophecy, we see the Spirit coming on Zechariah. Uh, his son, John the Baptist, proclaims that the kingdom is near, and he proclaims the way of the Lord, and then Jesus comes. And that is in the late 20s AD. So there's a gap of hundreds of years, some 400 years. And although many interesting things happen in that gap, very few Christians know anything about it. Uh, Bible readers used to. 
The truth is, up to a few hundred years ago, uh, it was common knowledge. And, uh, and even some of these apocryphal books were uh, familiar. Some still are at a popular level, but uh, much more familiar than today. The point is that the Jews continued writing. And we shouldn't think that everything written by the Jews was scripture. Only a very small part of what was written by the Jews is scripture. As today, a Christian bookstore may have all kinds of uh, writings in it, but the Bible section is uh, fairly small. Most of the stuff is other things. Well, the Apocrypha consists of historical books like First and Second Maccabees. Later on, you've got Third and even Fourth Maccabees, and that's Fourth Maccabees is more philosophy. But you have historical books, and they're fairly solid and very useful. Uh, in my book, a quick overview of the Bible, I break it down, hit the highlights, and urge Christians to become familiar with the Maccabees. Uh, other historical books, First and Second Ezra. Then there are folk tales, Judith and Tobit, a very popular reading. Uh, there's wisdom literature, just as in the Old Testament we have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Job, uh, and the wisdom literature of the Apocrypha. There's the wisdom of Solomon, and not written by Solomon. It's much later, and it's in Greek, but it's attributed to him. And another one called Sirach. Sirach has an alternate name, which, which is Ecclesiasticus. These were very familiar to the apostles and to Jesus. And besides uh, historical books, folktale, wisdom literature, there are also some additions, kind of a jazzing up we see uh, in Daniel, Esther, and Jeremiah, extra parts. Even the Psalms, there's an extra Psalm, Psalm 151, which I share about in a podcast somewhere, but it's a Psalm about David slaying Goliath. I think these books are very useful, particularly the historical ones, to understand the flow of biblical history. But even the wisdom literature, because you'll see uh, echoes of Wisdom of Solomon and, and Sirach, even in the New Testament. And once in a blue moon, there's even a quotation of the Apocrypha. Well, there are many uh, interesting excerpts uh, that uh, I, I think are, are just a lot of fun. And I've given you a, a link uh, in the notes here, or if you're just going straight to uh, the website to retrieve it, it's called Second Thoughts. So it's Second Thoughts on the Apocrypha. So we'll see that there, there are many things that are great. There's some things that are kind of troubling. And overall, I recommend people read it, but, that, but not necessarily with the conviction that these are Scripture. Um, why don't I give you um, a couple of examples? I'll admit that the first time I heard of the Apocrypha, I, have, I was taught that these books uh, were never in the Bible. They were added in by the wicked Catholics in the Middle Ages, or after, right after the Middle Ages, in response to the, the, uh, the Protestants, because the Apocrypha seemed to support many Roman Catholic practices. So I was taught that they were never in the Bible, that the Old Testament always consisted of the 39 books, and that the Protestants uh, re rejected them in the 1500s, and then the Catholics said, well, oh, no, you don't. We've always had them in our Bible, uh, and we're going to reaffirm that these are fully inspired. Well, interestingly, in 2000, I was uh, invited to go to Sweden because the Swedes had just come out with a new translation. It was called Bible 2000, Bible 2000, 
And this Bible included the Apocrypha. I also learned that these books had actually always been in the Swedish Bibles up until uh, World War I. So they'd actually only been removed recently. In fact, even in English, the King James Bible, so popular, which was published in 1611, the original version included the Apocrypha. And so as I looked into history and the usage of the Apocryphal works by Jews and Christians, I had to admit that uh, as a Protestant, I had been unfair to the Catholics, that they had actually been using these books for 1,500 years when they affirmed that they are uh, scriptural, although of a secondary level. These are uh, big words, but proto-canonical would be the books of the Old and New Testament that most of you listening to this uh, uh, class would be thinking of. But deuterocanonical, proto-first, deutero-second, deuterocanonical works, the Old Testament Apocrypha, they're, they're in the Bible, the Catholics would say, as with the Orthodox, but they're on a secondary level of authority. I hope that makes sense. So they weren't really added to the Bible in the Counter-Reformation of the mid-1500s um, at the end of the Middle Ages. No, they weren't added to the Bible. In one sense, they'd been there um, from the beginning. Well, if nothing else, that should intrigue you to get in there and read it. It doesn't really take that long. And maybe you've heard of books, some of these books before, like Wisdom of Solomon or First or Second Maccabees. And, and and maybe you know that the Catholic Bibles are bigger than Protestant Bibles. Same for Orthodox. But I have not met many Christians, even ministers who preach on Sundays, uh, who have taken the time to read the Apocrypha. Well, I said before that they were written in the intertestamental period, 400 B.C. to the time of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, most of them, though, were written between 200 B.C. and the first century. So, uh, of course, the, the Jews who wrote these books uh, respected Torah, and they believed in those basic divisions, uh, Torah, uh, Nevi'im, Kutavim. But if you, if you understand that for them, the Torah was the center of God's revelation, the prophets are like the next concentric circle, the prophets pointing us to the bullseye, pointing us to the Torah, and the writings are further reflections on everything that's been shared by it, the, the scriptural writers, that's like a third circle, then you can think of the apocryphal works maybe as a fourth circle, if you can think, think of a target or concentric circles. So I've had to try to be honest and, and reread the apocryphal work, uh, books. And it was interesting, when I did this study, uh, Second Thoughts on the Apocrypha, I concluded that I hadn't been fair the first time, and all of a sudden, these things didn't look so bad. They didn't seem so heretical. I'm not saying all my questions were answered, but it is interesting how our presuppositions can color our experience of what we read. So my conclusion is that the apocryphal works gradually became accepted as scripture by the church leaders. Now, whereas the Catholic and Orthodox Christians would say they were always part of the Old Testament and they were always respected and used by the church. I'm not so sure. And I say that because when I look at quotations from the Apocrypha in Christian works, early Christian works, I see the Apocrypha cited as Scripture, as 
words of the Holy Spirit. In the second century, just a few times in the first half of that century. So think, the apostolic era, first century, then in the second century, up to, say, the year 150 or so, I just found three quotations as scripture. And then in the second half of the second century, I found loads. Many Christian writers are thinking of the Apocrypha as inspired in the third century even more and the fourth century even more. So the belief that the Apocrypha were inspired developed, it evolved. And so, again, in the Counter-Reformation, the Catholics said, well, we've been using this thing since the beginning. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that they had considered it was inspired from the beginning, but clearly uh, that was the majority view by the year 200, okay? So there's an evolution, and, and that makes sense because that's very much the way it is in um, just the development of religion. So you'll find many um, allusions to the Apocrypha in the New Testament, and I've given you in my article a number of, of lists of that. So historical books like Esdras, uh, it's probably the book most intimately connected with the Old Testament. And its purpose is to show how Josiah and Zerubbabel and Ezra uh, really helped to reform worship. And there's some minor discrepancies with uh, the canonical Old Testament accounts, but uh, it's not bad. Since the Council of Trent, oh, this is the Counter-Reformation in the mid-1500s, this book has usually appeared in, a, in an appendix of the Catholic Bibles. Um, Second Esdras is an apocalyptic work. That is, it's very similar to Revelation and uh, has some very interesting teachings. Uh, for example, uh, there are some individual Gentiles who, if they're obedient to God's commandments, they're, they're going to be fine. They're going to make it. Uh, we... We have the ancient cosmology, but the earth is land, almost entirely land. One-seventh of the, of the orb of the earth is, is water. Well, that's actually quite a, quite a bit off. Uh, we have, I think Second Ezra 7 is pretty good for understanding messianic expectations in the first century. In fact, Second uh, Ezra uh, 13 and 14 equate the Messiah with the Son of God. And that may tell us why Jesus preferred the more neutral term, Son of Man instead of Son of God, uh, because or, or even Messiah. It would really throw, throw people off. And it's also interesting to me that this book denies prayers for the dead, that they actually work. <laughs> and so this is in Second Ezra 7. So that section was cut out by the, the Roman church, but that, because it contradicts Second Maccabees 12, which affirms prayers uh, for the dead. Interesting stuff. There are all kinds of things. Um, this book teaches that there are 94 books that were revealed. Uh, that would have included the 24 canonical books. And then 70 further apocryphal works. Some of them may have been quite esoteric. Now, then there's the book of Tobit. Now, this was a short story, one of the most popular books for the Jews. It's interesting. It's fun. Uh, Tobit and Judith were normally placed right between Nehemiah and Esther in the canon. Uh, well, you find some historical inaccuracies You'll find it's not the New Testament, so you find the silver rule, the negative golden rule. Uh, but there's some there's some things that are inspiring, some great passages on on giving to the poor. On the other hand, that this was one of the first apocryphal passages I have that really struck me uh, was Tobit twelve nine, where it says that almsgiving delivers us from death and purges away all sin. You know, just as uh, 
Water puts out a raging fire, so almsgiving delivers from death. Well, you, you can see why the medieval church would be fond of that and why the Roman Catholics would hang on to that when the Protestants were criticizing the legalism and traditions of, uh, of a very human church. Um, there's uh, apparently approval of the, the practice of offering food to the dead, Tobit 4. We find some incredible superstition in chapter 6. So uh, let me read. The young man said to the angel, Brother Azarias, of what use is the liver and heart and gall of the fish? And he, he replied, um, well, uh, it's for the heart and liver. There's a demon or evil spirit that it gives trouble to you. You can make smoke from these uh, in front of the man or woman, and that person will never be troubled again. And as for the gall, you anoint with it a man who has white films in his eyes, and he'll be cured. So this is a popular, it's kind of folk medicine. And we never see Jesus following this kind of advice. And even though the Jews and the surrounding nations were controlled by a fear of demons, uh, and they had some pretty interesting medical ideas, we don't see that in the New Testament. In fact, we don't see Jesus using any uh, special ceremonies. And oh, and again, another place in chapter 8 in Tobit, we find that a demon is driven away by an offensive odor. Hmm. Okay. I've got other problems with that book, which I put in my article. Judith is another popular folktale about a beautiful woman who saves her people. Once again, we have issues. For example, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is placed after the exile. But probably most troubling to me is the book of Judith, we find in the final chapter, uh, chapter 16, the view of infinite conscious torment. Before this time, there's no clear passage in the Old Testament or, or in the Apocrypha of people being sentenced to hell and burning forever. Uh, Woe to the nations that rise up against my people. The Lord will take vengeance on them in the day of judgment. Fire and worms he will give to their flesh. They shall weep in pain forever. That's quite a twist on the original thought in the final verse of the prophet Isaiah. There, the people are not even conscious. They're just being consumed. But in Judith, they are. And as you know, this becomes the dominant medieval view uh, on hell. Well, we, we'll see similar teachings in uh, later in uh, Sirach 7 and 4th Maccabees 9. It's not at all certain to me that Jesus endorsed this view of hell. With their extra verses in Esther, uh, Wisdom of Solomon uh, was written in the first century BC. It has some pretty cool passages uh, about the expectations for the Messiah. And I would really encourage you to read, even if you have to just go online, read Wisdom of Solomon 2.12 to 3.9. Amazing things in there. And this book and Sirach uh, were heavily quoted in the patristic writers. Sirach is actually the only apocryphal book uh, whose name is known. Uh, You know, he's uh, uh, Jesus. Well, Jesus ben Sirach. Uh, The book's also called Ecclesiasticus. It's often referred to in the book of James. Oh, the oldest manuscript was actually found in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Uh, a, man, a part of Sirach that was 2,000 years old. But not everything is right. For example, don't give to the unrighteous. As a Christian, I have a hard time with that because Jesus encourages us to give, even if the person's wicked, Luke 6. Uh, we have kind of an easy divorce. Uh, you know, if you're having problems with your problems with your wife, just go ahead and get rid of her. Or in chapter 30, if you love your son, you'll whip him often. 
you know, often whip your son. It just seems like it goes too far. But there's good advice for stock investors, chapter 31. Wakefulness over wealth wastes away one's flesh, and anxiety about it removes sleep. <laughs> that's, that's great. There's advice on etiquette and table manners, uh, treatment of slaves. Yoke and thong will bow the neck, and for a wicked servant there are racks and tortures. That's chapter 33. And don't be ashamed of whipping a wicked servant severely. Uh, that's just that's just not right. Uh, and it, it certainly doesn't even match well with the, the kind of um, slavery uh, or servanthood that was practiced in Exodus and, you know, in the Old Testament law. It's quite different. One of the most outlandish passages in Sirach, in chapter 50, you can see prejudice against the Edomites and the Samaritans. This, this by the way, I think helps us to appreciate uh, chapter 4 of John, uh, the, the tension between Jews and Samaritans. And this is what it says. Uh, With two nations my soul is vexed, and the third is no nation. Those who live on Mount Seir, that would be the Edomites, and the Philistines and the foolish people, or the stupid people who dwell in Shechem. So you can see there the anti-Samaritan uh, prejudice. Baruch is another book pretending to be written by Jeremiah's secretary, but it was actually written uh, three or four centuries too late. There's a letter of Jeremiah. There's a song of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, with all kinds of embellishments. And the three are waxing eloquent while they're strolling about in the fire. Remember, they were thrown to the fire for refusing to commit idolatry. Uh, there's Susanna, uh, which is found... Uh, in the Septuagint and in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, there it's in it's Daniel chapter 13, where the beautiful Susanna is the target of some elders. Elders, lecherous elders, attempt to seize her, but they're unsuccessful. You know, but you see, you hear the name Susan in our culture. Uh, Suzanne, uh, Tobit, could be Tobias, Tobias. Uh, a number of other names we find in the Apocrypha are still given to children today. So we may not uh, be aware of their influence, but they, they're there. Uh, there's Bel and the dragon, Daniel. Uh, this is in addition to Daniel. Bel is the Babylonian god. And the dragon, uh, this book teaches that, that if you worship God, you'll be preserved through every trial. Of course, we know that's not, it's not really the way it is. Uh, god will be with us, but he won't remove the trial from us. Sometimes we'll just have to go right through it. Um, anyway. Various bloopers. We have Daniel being in the lion's den for seven days instead of the overnighter that the canonical Daniel spent there. Prayer of Manasseh. This is an apocryphal work I really like. It's stirring. It's a humble prayer. Uh, the wicked king Manasseh, who did repent according to uh, an account. You know, you have the Second Kings account and the Second Chronicles account. But he prays. He pours out his heart. And it's, uh, it's beautiful. And in my podcast on Manasseh, I, I share this. Uh, I've already mentioned 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, and it's valuable not just for the, the history it covers. It links the Testaments. Uh, but it, it also uh, shows us why the Jews felt so strongly about being occupied by the Romans. Because in the Maccabean time, 2nd century B.C., there was a revolution the Jews were sick and tired of being forced uh, to become pagan. You know, they were forced to sacrifice swine flesh. You couldn't circumcise your children under pain of death. Uh, they were being pushed into idolatry and 
becoming fashionable and elite and Greek and very sophisticated. And eventually uh, there was a revolt, um, uh, a war, in fact, and the Jews succeeded. For 100 years they were independent before the Romans came. And anyway, all the stories um, are there, and you, you may especially appreciate the story of the martyrdom of the, of the woman and her seven sons. I, I've done a separate podcast on that. Oh, third Maccabees, fourth Maccabees. I mentioned Psalm 151. So there's a lot of material there. I share my own questions about it and the history of the Apocrypha in the English Bibles. And I hope that this, um, this article uh, will be of use to you. It's not so long, uh, maybe seven, eight, maybe ten pages. I, I would urge you to become familiar as you can, familiar with the Apocrypha, because they fill in the gaps in Jewish history and thought between the close of the Old Testament canon and the New Testament. They're useful to read. I'm not saying they're inspired necessarily, but they are useful. Now, whereas the Old Testament came to exist over a span of nearly a millennium with parts of the Torah from the 13th century, the New Testament came uh, to be over the course of only 50 years. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the next lesson. I certainly appreciate your listening to the series and thank you for your interest in the issue of how the Bible came to be. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's series on evidences. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.